Chapter Ten of Moods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jenny McCann. Moods by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter Ten. Yes. It is easy to say, I will forget. But perhaps the hardest task given us is to lock up a natural yearning of the heart, and turn a deaf ear to its plaint, for captive and jailer must inhabit the same small cell. Sylvia was proud, with that pride which is both sensitive and courageous, which can not only suffer, but wring strength from suffering. While she struggled with a grief and shame that aged her with their pain, she asked no help, made no complaint. But when the forbidden passion stretched its arms to her, she thrust it back and turned to pleasure for oblivion. Those who knew her best were troubled and surprised by the craving for excitement which now took possession of her, the avidity with which she gratified it, regardless of time, health, and money. All day she hurried here and there, driving, shopping, sightseeing, or entertaining guests at home. Night brought no cessation of her dissipation, for when balls, masquerades, and concerts failed, there still remained the theatre. This soon became both a refuge and a solace, for believing it to be less harmful than other excitements, her father indulged her new whim. But had she known it, this was the most dangerous pastime she could have chosen. Calling for no exertion of her own, it left her free to passively receive a stimulant to her unhappy love in watching its mimic semblance through all phases of tragic suffering and sorrow, for she would see no comedies, and Shakespeare's tragedies became her study. This lasted for a time, then the reaction came. A black melancholy fell upon her, and energy deserted soul and body. She found it a weariness to get up in the morning, and weariness to lie down at night. She no longer cared even to seem cheerful, owned that she was spiritless, hoped she should be ill, and did not care if she died to-morrow. When this dark mood seemed about to become chronic, she began to mend. For youth is wonderfully recuperative, and the deepest wounds soon heal even against the sufferer's will. A quiet apathy replaced the gloom, and she let the tide drift her where it would, hoping nothing, expecting nothing, asking nothing, but that she need not suffer any more. She lived fast, all processes with her were rapid, and the secret experience of that winter taught her many things. She believed it had only taught her to forget, for now the outcast's love lay very still, and no longer beat despairingly against the door of her heart, demanding to be taken in from the cold. She fancied that neglect had killed it, and that its grave was green with many tears. Alas for Sylvia! How could she know that it had only sobbed itself to sleep, and would wake beautiful and strong at the first sound of its master's voice. Mark became eventful. In his fitful fashion he had painted a picture of the golden wedding, from sketches taken at the time. Moore had suggested and bespoken it, that the young artist might have a motive for finishing it, because, though he excelled in scenes of that description, he thought them beneath him, and tempted by more ambitious designs, neglected his true branch of the art. In April it was finished, and at his father's request, 
Mark reluctantly sent it with his Clytemnestra to the annual exhibition. One morning at breakfast Mr. Yule suddenly laughed out behind his paper, and with a face of unmixed satisfaction passed it to his son, pointing to a long critique upon the exhibition. Mark prepared himself to receive with becoming modesty the praises lavished upon his great work, but was stricken with amazement to find Clytemnestra disposed of in a single sentence, and the golden wedding lauded in a long, enthusiastic paragraph. "'What the deuce does the man mean?' he ejaculated, staring at his father. "'He means that the work which warms the heart is greater than that which freezes the blood, I suspect.' Moore knew what you could do, and has made you do it, sure that if you worked for fame unconsciously you should achieve it. This is a success that I can appreciate, and I congratulate you heartily, my son. Thank you, sir, but upon my word I don't understand it, and if this wasn't written by the best art critic in the country I should feel inclined to say the writer was a fool. Why, that little thing was a daub compared to the other." He got no farther in his protest against this unexpected freak of fortune, for Sylvia seized the paper and read the paragraph aloud with such happy emphasis, amid Prue's outcries and his father's applause, that Mark began to feel that he really had done something praiseworthy, and that the daub was not so despicable after all. "'I'm going to look at it from this new point of sight,' was his sole comment as he went away. Three hours afterward he appeared to Sylvia as she sat sewing alone, and startled her with the mysterious announcement, "'I've done it!' "'Done what? Have you burnt poor Clytemnestra?' "'Hang Clytemnestra. I'll begin at the beginning, and prepare you for the grand finale. I went to the exhibition, and stared at Father Blake and his family for an hour. Decided that wasn't bad, though I still admire the other more.' Then people began to come and crowd up, so that I slipped away, for I couldn't stand the compliments. Dalman, Scott, and all the rest of my tribe were there, and, as true as my name is Mark Yule, every man of them ignored the Greek party and congratulated me upon the success of that confounded golden wedding. "'My dearest boy, I am so proud, so glad! What is the matter? Have you been bitten by a tarantula?' She might well ask, for Mark was dancing all over the carpet in a most extraordinary style, and only stopped long enough to throw a little case into Sylvia's lap, asking, as a whole face full of smiles broke loose, "'What does that mean?' She opened it, and a suspicious circlet of diamonds appeared, at sight of which she clapped her hands and cried out, "'You're going to ask Jessie to wear it!' "'I have, I have!' sung Mark, dancing more wildly than ever." Sylvia chased him into a corner and held him there, almost as much excited as he, while she demanded a full explanation, which he gave her, laughing like a boy and blushing like a girl. "'You have no business to ask, but of course I'm dying to tell you. I went from that painter's purgatory, as we call it, to Mr. Hope's, and asked for Miss Jessie. My angel came down. I told her of my success, and she smiled as never a woman did before.' I added that I'd only waited to make myself more worthy of her, by showing that I had talent, as well as love, and money to offer her, and she began to cry, whereat I took her in my arms and ascended straight into heaven. "'Please be sober, Mark, and tell me all about it. Was she glad? Did she say she would? 
and is everything as we would have it? It is all perfect, divine and rapturous to the last degree. Jessie has liked me ever since she was born, she thinks, adores you and Prue for sisters, yearns to call my parent father, allowed me to say and do whatever I liked, and gave me a ravishing kiss just there. Sacred spot. I shall get a mate to it when I put this on her blessed little finger. Try it for me. I want it to be right, and your hands are of a size. That fits grandly. When shall I see a joyful sweetheart doing this on his own behalf, Sylvia? Never. She shook off the ring as if it burned her, watching it roll glittering away, with a somewhat tragical expression. Then she calmed herself, and sitting down to her work, enjoyed Mark's raptures for an hour. The distant city bells were ringing nine that night, as a man paused before Mr. Yule's house, and attentively scrutinized each window. Many were alight, but on the drawn curtain of one, a woman's shadow came and went. He watched in a moment, passed up the steps, and noiselessly went in. The hall was bright and solitary. From above came the sound of voices. From a room to the right, the stir of papers and the scratch of a pen. From one on the left, a steady rustle, as of silk, swept slowly to and fro. To the threshold of this door the man stepped and looked in. Sylvia was just turning in her walk, and as she came musing down the room, Moore saw her well. With some women, dress has no relation to states of mind. With Sylvia, it was often an indication of the mental garb she wore. Moore remembered this trait, and saw in both countenance and costume the change that had befallen her in his long absence. Her face was neither gay nor melancholy, but serious and coldly quiet as if some inward twilight reigned. Her dress, a soft, sad gray, with no decoration but a knot of snowdrops in her bosom. On these pale flowers her eyes were fixed, and as she walked with folded arms and drooping head, she sang low to herself. Upon the convent roof the snows lie sparkling to the moon. My breath to heaven like incense goes. May my soul follow soon. Lord, make my spirit pure and clear, as are the frosty skies, or this first snowdrop of the year that in my bosom lies. Sylvia! Very gentle was the call, but she started as if it had been a shout, looked an instant while light and color flashed into her face, then ran to him, exclaiming joyfully, Oh, Geoffrey, I am glad, I am glad! There could be but one answer to such a welcome, and Sylvia received it as she stood there, not weeping now, but smiling, with the sincerest satisfaction, the happiest surprise. Moore shared both emotions, feeling as a man might feel when, parched with thirst, he stretches out his hand for a drop of rain and receives a brimming cup of water. He drank a deep draught gratefully then, fearing that it might be as suddenly withdrawn, asked anxiously, "'Sylvia, are we friends or lovers?' anything if you will only stay. She looked up as she spoke, and her face betrayed that a conflict between desire and doubt was going on within her. Impulse had sent her there, and now it was so sweet to know herself beloved, she found it hard to go away. Her brother's happiness had touched her heart, roused the old craving for affection, and brought a strong desire to fill the aching void her lost love had left with this recovered one. Sylvia had not learned to reason yet, she could only feel, 
because owing to the unequal development of her divided nature, the heart grew faster than the intellect. Instinct was her surest guide, and when she followed it, unblinded by a passion, unthwarted by a mood, she prospered. But now she was so blinded and so thwarted, and now her great temptation came. Ambition, man's idol, had tempted the father. Love, woman's god, tempted the daughter. And as if the father's atonement was to be wrought out through his dearest child, the daughter also made the fatal false step of her life. "'Then you have learned to love me, Sylvia?' "'No. The old feeling has not changed except to grow more remorseful, more eager to prove its truth. Once you asked me if I did not wish to love you. Then I did not. Now I sincerely do. If you still want me with my many faults, and will teach me in your gentle way to be all I should to you, I will gladly learn, because I never needed love as I do now. Geoffrey, shall I stay or go?' "'Stay, Sylvia.' "'Ah, thank God for this.' If she had ever hoped that Moore would forget her for his own sake, she now saw how vain such hope would have been, and was both touched and troubled by the knowledge of her supremacy which that hour gave her. She was as much the calmer as friendship is than love, and was the first to speak again, still standing there content, although her words expressed a doubt. "'Are you very sure you want me?' Are you not tired of the thorn that has fretted you so long? Remember, I am so young, so ignorant, and unfitted for a wife. Can I give you real happiness? Make home what you would have it, and never see in your face regret that some wiser, better woman was not in my place? I am sure of myself, and satisfied with you, as you are no wiser, no better, nothing but my Sylvia. It is very sweet to hear you say that with such a look. I do not deserve it, but I will. Is the pain I once gave you gone now, Geoffrey? Gone forever. Then I am satisfied, and will begin my life anew by trying to learn well the lesson my kind master is to teach me. When Moore went that night, Sylvia followed him, and as they stood together, this happy moment seemed to recall that other sad one, for taking her hands again, he asked, smiling now, Dear, is it good night or good-bye? It is goodbye, and come tomorrow. End of chapter 10